Hello, everyone. Welcome uh, to this uh, first episode of uh, Conversation with a Leader, a new series uh, online on the YouTube channel by uh, Pacific Venture. I will be uh, meeting with uh, important leaders, international leaders, people who have great insights to provide on leadership and all uh, the issues and challenges that the world is going through right now. And for this first episode, I'm really happy to welcome uh, my mentor, my friend, uh, someone I, I've been uh, following and walking in the steps of uh, since a long time now, uh, Keith Koth. Uh, Keith, welcome. Thank you, Philip. Lovely to be here. Thank you very much. So, Keith, you're the co-founder of uh, Tomorrow Today Global, a company that was started in uh, South Africa, but now has expanding in the UK and all over the world. And you've been work- working with uh, very important businesses like Boeing, uh, Sanofi, if I'm, if I'm correct, Credit Suisse all those uh, important uh, company. But uh, without further ado, I'm just going to let you tell us a little bit more about you, your career, what uh, brought you all the way to where you are today. Thanks, Philip. Yes, so I'm based in London, um, but I'm a South African. I've only been living in London for the last five years. It's a temporary it's a temporary stopgap before returning home to South Africa, probably in another year or two's time. Um, but I, uh, I w- after Vosti, I went into finance for a short period of time, and then I got a very uh, big detour. I was invited to lead a nonprofit organisation that, in the time in that time in South Africa, was involved with homeless children or street children, as they were termed then. And uh, it was a very a, a real U-turn in terms of the direction that I'd been equipped to do, and I was actually doing. But it was an incredible challenge, and I, I mention this because it was it was so significant. I spent the first part half of my working life working in this context, and uh, that's I think where I was schooled in leadership in the early in the early context of my life. Spent uh, just uh, nineteen years in the organisation and dealing with incredible challenges uh, far above my pay grade. I. Um, I had, I remember on one occasion, had a staff member who had been raped. Um, we were burying kids. They were involved in all kinds of issues. It was a social political scenario at the time, South Africa under apartheid. So the systemic issues were just overwhelming. And you always felt that you were trying to deal with a situation that you just didn't have the resources for. So I, I was schooled uh, significantly in those 19 years. As I made my way after that, um, it was a, a very strong juncture to leave. I knew that uh, the organisation needed younger leadership, more representative leadership in the context at the time, and I initiated uh, leaving. And uh, that was a good thing as well. There are lots of lessons in that. And I then uh, just really picked up uh, a passion that I've always had, and that is around leadership and around organisational effectiveness and design. And started a consultancy um, without really knowing how it was going to do. And very shortly after starting that consultancy, uh, three of us as friends merged and created another consultancy that was Tomorrow Today. And that was uh, in about 2002. And uh, we've just had an incredible ride since then. Uh, We dreamt of having a client on every continent, but we were stuck on the southern tip of Africa. And... um, through a lot of good fortune, I guess, and just being at the right place at the right time, have ended up with a a significant international consultancy, not big in numbers, but in terms of where we get to operate, with whom we get to play, 
uh, have exceeded all our expectations. And so um, that's been some of the journey, a, a journey of two halves um, that are seemingly very different from each other. Uh, the boardrooms I get to play in now and the classrooms at leading business schools is very different from my former context, and yet both have richly informed uh, my own leadership journey and perspective. Mm. So that's a very different profile from the usual leadership consultant who come from MBAs, academics, or as you say, boards and, and, and corporate uh, frames, I would say. Uh, how do you think it makes a difference in the way you see leadership? Yeah, it's a great question. I, I think uh, it, 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 well, for me, it has, an, it has informed my philosophy. So from an early on process, I never saw leadership as something you do. It was more something you are. Um, and yes, there are skills that leaders need to acquire, um, but that's not leadership. Those are tools of the trade. So for me, leadership always was something that comes out of a character ethic. You lead out of who you are. And so doing that inner landscaping or self-awareness work, I think, is fundamental to leadership. And in the early days, for me, that was forged, as I said, because I was dealing with scenarios that were too complex for me just to navigate using smart leadership. The kind of scenarios we were in, the situations we were in, the context in which some, it, it forced you to go deeper. Um, and I, I, so I think... Uh, it, it's informed a philosophy for me that is an understanding that you lead out of who you are. The character ethic of leadership um, is critical. A quick story on that. I remember once meeting with one of my mentors, a philosopher by the name of Dallas Willard, and I had been influenced by his writing. Uh, I was in the States on business at a particular time. This was many years ago, and I read that he was going to be doing a series of public lectures in a nearby city. So I took a chance. I contacted him out the blue and I said, uh, Dr. Willard, you've never met me, but um, here's what I'd like to do. I'd love to change my schedule, get to meet you in person to say thank you and just to meet you, have the privilege of meeting you. Um, so my question is, if I do all that, please could I carve out some specific time with you and have a cup of coffee? And very graciously, Willard wrote back and said, please, Keith, be my guest. Let's do that. Anyway, long story short, all the changes were made. I'm sitting at breakfast with Dr. Willard, and I said to him, may I ask you a question um, that is kind of personal? And he said, not a problem. And I said, what is the best advice you could give me? Now, bear in mind, he had never met me. Uh, we'd only had about half an hour conversation at that point. That's a tough question to ask. And I'll never forget his answer. He thought for a long time. And then he looked at me and said, never worry about the size of the stage in life that you feel called to perform on. Worry more that you have something worthwhile to say. And I've just never been able to shake that concept. And often when it comes to leadership, we put a great deal of stock on the size of the stage, the size of the corporation being led, et cetera. And the bigger the stage, the brighter the light, the bigger the audience, et cetera. And what Willard was pointing to me uh, was to the character ethic of leadership. And some people have big stages and are very strong influences. Other people have seemingly relatively small stages, but regardless of the size of the stage, have something worthwhile. And I've tried to follow that and explore in my own journey what that means continually. So, Philippe, yeah, I think it's um I think it's informed an understanding of leadership as being about character, who you are. Yes. 
Interesting. Thanks for sharing this story. Uh, so in order to lay the ground of the coming question, can you just shortly tell us what's your definition of leadership? Leadership is helping people face their most difficult challenges and um, the willingness to to lead them through. I think it would, uh, I haven't got it done, Pat, but I think it would be about influencing others to face up and to face their most difficult challenges. Okay, interesting. And that uh, ties pretty well with the coming question. Why do you think it's important to talk about leadership in the times that we are living today, which are troubled times? Uh, 2020 is bound to be one of the so-called worst year uh, ever. So why is it so important to talk about leadership right now? Well, Philippe, I, I think 2020, though it's a terrible year from a pandemic point of view, I think we're living in fantastic times. And I think I think leadership matters. And um, I'd like to draw a distinction. I don't assume that leadership has to have authority. So we, when we use the term leaders, we often look at those in the right positions or those with authority. You can lead without authority. Um, I think what's happening in Hong Kong, what's happening in Thailand, uh, right now, Taiwan to an extent as well as you, uh, you're having uh, uh, ground grassroots movements emerge in response to a particular situation that are leaderless, and they pride themselves in being leaderless organisations. And I, I think I think there's something incredibly significant happening right now when one is a student of leadership. There's these kind of leaderless movements coming from young people. Um, and I think it's going to influence how we view leadership. So, um, yeah, I, I I think we live in some very interesting times and leadership matters and how leadership is practiced matters. And uh, we need to put it under the microscope. Um, President Trump, I guess, being a, a good example in the debate that swirls around his leadership. Yeah, well, we'll we'll come back to to this specific case uh, in, in a moment. Um, but um, this is interesting. So, if I interpret what you just said, basically, the current times are beyond whatever we can see in the news, pandemics, and all that. This is mostly a times of changes in leadership that will then eventually lead to some new paradigms, more frameworks in terms of how our communities are organized, driven, and led. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. I think leaders got it. Leaders need to help people with perspective, and so uh, Hans Rosling, he's one of my heroes. He uh, unfortunately passed away in 2017, and we really miss his voice. He led an organization called Gapminder, uh, and Hans spent the last decade of his life trying to create an accurate worldview. And the work I do as a futurist, um, that's very important. If we start with an erroneous worldview. Uh, we make bad decisions based on that. And and Hans Rosling did some deep research, fact-based research on things like um, uh, demographics and poverty and uh, health. He was a medical doctor in the, his prior life. And um, we really have missed his voice during this global pandemic. He was at the forefront of dealing with Ebola, and he would have been a wonderful resource to help put perspective on what we're going through now. But, but nonetheless, what, what Rosling suggests is that we need to create an accurate worldview. So we're living in a world right now that, besides the pandemic, put that to one side, has never been healthier, has never been better off in terms of standard of living, has never been better educated, and has never been more peaceful. 
but we have a skewed worldview because of the way media is fed to us. And so mass media and social media often give us a far more pessimistic view of the world in which we live. And, and I think leaders are people that need to get hold of an accurate worldview and, and be brokers of hope in that particular context. And because they are people of influence, because people are looking to them, uh, they critical leadership matters. Mm. All right. Um, go, going back to your story about the stage and the size of the stage, uh, do you differentiate between local and global leadership? And if you do, how? Or if you don't, why? Sure, that's a, that's a good question, tough one. I think there is a distinction because I think it goes exactly to what you said. I think if it's local, it's probably, but not necessarily, likely to be less complex in that you're probably dealing with some greater synergies, um, more homogeny, um, and that might make it simpler. Um, the moment you start expanding to a bigger and more global stage, the size of the complexity increases dramatically um, and the dexterity needed to understand that in, is enhanced. So um, I think local is just uh, uh, is slightly more manageable. It does not mean to say you don't have complexity. I mean, you can step into my home country, South Africa, and you've got multiple levels of complexity all colliding from rich to poor, educated, non-educated, rural, urban, et cetera, not to mention the obvious ethnicity and cultural uh, diversity. So it's. I don't want to make it sound like local is simple. It's not. But the size, and uh, I think global leaders today, um, it's an ex a very very difficult task. Um, yeah. And and is it important for a local leader to think also as like on a global uh, perspective and vice versa? I think it is because I think these two worlds are colliding continually. So. Um, you know, um, I, I think we've often attached unhelpful labels, whether it's big or small or um, localized or global. And one of the unhelpful labels, as an example, is developing and developed world. Um, and fortunately, the UN has recently dispensed with that kind of categorization because what we then do is we apportion large parts of the world to developing. And that's not true. When you step into what we used to call developing, you will find again, the kind of diversity that we're talking about. And for instance, Gapminder talk about a far more accurate way to see the world is in levels based on income. And um, they have level one up to $2, level two up to $8, et cetera, level three and level four, level four being uh, anything above $32 per day being earned. And the analogy is this, you can walk down a street and you'll have a level one house next to a level four house, next to a level two house, et cetera. That's the diversity of the world. So just categorizing it all or an area as level one or another area as level four is, is a bit disingenuous. And I think when we start getting the right kind of categories and the right kind of labels that are helpful and are accurate, we can navigate through all this. Um, mm. But for any leader who's local, yeah. You've got to think globally. We live in an interconnected uh, community in many respects, economically. Right now, the world's pulling away a bit. Brexit being an example, America's foreign policy over the last four years being another. But I think these are temporary things. I think uh, the world is really interconnected, and any local leader has to be paying attention to what's happening on the bigger stage.
Mm. And, and just adding to that, that uh, diversity is not only what you can see and like on the ethnical or cultural element and that communities don't have to be also geographically uh, bounded. They can also be like global communities uh, as okay. like through social medias, as you were saying. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Um, so we were saying that the year 2020 has got uh, a full uh, handful of, uh, of big issues, but uh, uh, there are broader elements that uh, researchers call existential threats, uh, nuclear risk, climate change, the rise of AI and, and, and robotization and all that. Uh, facing or, or thinking about these challenges that like, are at a scale where our species uh, is at risk, uh, what kind of leadership do you think we need to address those? I think we need leaders who can and can put the current reality into a context. So let me just step back and give you an example. If you go back to the 14th century, there was another global pandemic, the Black Plague. It had a mortality rate of 80%. It killed uh, 50% of Europe's population at the time. So think about that for a moment. 80% of people who got the Black Plague didn't make it. Uh, obviously, it was a very different medical context back then, and 50% of Europe's population lost their lives. Uh, the Black Plague that happened in the first half of the 14th century precipitated a very specific event in uh, 1381 that was called the Peasants' Uprising or the Peasants' Revolt. It was attributed to the conditions created by the plague around tax, land tax, etc. And the Peasants' Revolt of 1381 led directly to uh, the collapse of the feudal system in Europe, an entire societal order that had been around for centuries collapsed. Now, we can see all this, and I'm connecting some very broad dots here, through the hindsight of history and the wisdom of history. And I think going through the year 2020, when we view it from down the road, far down the road, we will start to see some very big movements. So I think good leaders are leaders who have this ability to step back or what is called in the adaptive leadership model, getting off the dance floor onto the balcony. And the view from the balcony is different. And it, it allows you to see some of the changes on the periphery. It allows you a different vantage point. And it's a, it's a mental discipline and even a physical discipline to get on the balcony. And I think good leaders today are leaders who are working hard on creating a sense of perspective uh, for those that they are leading in the context in which they find themselves. Um, and, yeah, and, and then calling it from there. So I think that's absolutely critical. Yet, uh, one could argue that in the past years, we have seen a lot of communities under the leadership of someone uh, growing resistance against not only those big challenges that I just mentioned, but also more like, real life issues, uh, diversity, global movement, migration, even against climate change, science or women's rights. Uh, why do you think this happened? Do you think there has been a failure in, in leadership that has led to those resistances? No, I think, I think those movements um, are just the result of, uh, of people um, coming into a different um, resource in their life. So as you get to level two and level three, using that model I gave you, um, you start to get rights, you start to have rights, you have something to defend, be it property, etc. I think it's coupled with an age of, if you've got an opinion, you've got a platform through social media. I think it's um, 
it's uh, it's come about because of an accentuation of the extremes um, and and an intolerance of those extremes, and so it's a movement. And I'm not sure where it's going. I don't think it's necessarily good or bad. It's a reality, um, and it's 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 just what it is. It's difficult. Um, I think people are are um, are not are no longer willing to be dictated to, and I, I'm cautious not to say. It's a it's a gravitation towards democracy because we've seen in some countries uh, a democratic approach to life has actually militated against an effective dealing with COVID nineteen, mm. which is again a whole different discussion on its own. So I'm not talking about a political system here. I'm talking about people who have opinions, who feel issues, who want to express them. I think there's a generational mix in there. Uh, a younger generation sees the world that they're inheriting and a world in which they're living and don't like certain things. So I'm not sure what the end game is. I'm not sure if it's going to get any more um, calmer. But again, this is why leadership is so important to, to calm things down, to bring a sense of perspective, to know where to put pressure on, how to do that. Um, and it's just, there's, there's a futurist by the name of William Gibson who said the future's yeah. already happened, it's just unequally distributed. And we're living on a planet where this uneven distribution is felt acutely day in and day out, which makes it so complex. Yeah. Uh, going back to what you were saying on opinions, uh, that's something you see a lot on social media, to be entitled to your opinions. Uh, when she got re-elected, uh, Jacinda Ardern, the Prime Minister of, of New Zealand, who has become recently a model of leadership uh, for a lot of people, has mentioned in a victory speech the growing polarization of our world and of politics. Um, so do you agree with her on that? And it seems to me that uh, somehow you do. And, and what do you think current leaders do to help rebuild a global conversation or just like a normal conversation with, within our communities, whatever communities we're in? Yeah, social media, it's such a blessing and a curse all at the same time, isn't it? Because it, you're right, it is polarizing. Uh, fake news is very real. Uh, disinformation is very real. And I think we're going to need to very much more intentionally teach younger children and young adults, as well as old adults, but I'm talking about it being part of the education process around discernment, around understanding how to filter news. Because again, it's not going to go away. I don't think you can just shackle it. I think there are things we can do to to make it harder for it to be used to perpetuate falsehood and uh, polarization, but it's never entirely going to be containable. And so I think the onus then becomes on education to, to, to equip us with um, a, a better discernment around what is just pure clickbait and what is sensationalism. And so I get back to the work that Gapminder and Rosling do around how do we discern facts when we see a single figure. I'll give you a quick example. Um, if I put up a figure on the screen, for instance, and said in 2016, which was the last time we had accurate child mortality stats, there were 4.2 million children under the age of five who died. Bang. 
and you might be horrified, 4.2 million. If you're living in a, a country with access to Medicare and that, that's almost an inconceivable amount and you, you might get angry. But we, we don't have any way of gauging the effectiveness of knowing how to put a context. So let's just park that for a moment and go back one lifetime, 70 years to 1950, and look at the child mortality rate then was 14.4 million. Now, that gives us a reference point, but it still doesn't tell the whole story. We need, we, need a, we need more context, more reference. So then if you're going to look at how good or how bad, of course, every child's death is bad, but I mean, whether it's going up or down, we need to know how many children were born in each of those years. So in 2016, that figure is 141 million. So out of 141 million child children being born, 4.2 million died. In 1950, out of 14.4 uh, million children dying, the birth rate was around 78 million. And when you then put that into a percentage, it's gone from 15% mortality rate to 3% mortality rate in one lifetime. We're getting better. So rather than respond to the clickbait of 4.2 million, we need to be more discerning and understand how to put numbers uh, into context because social media and the mass media aren't interested in giving us context generally. They're looking for stories that grab our attention, um, stories that create strong emotions that then get expressed and explode on social media. So we need to we need to find a way to counter that. I don't think censoring social media is the answer. It might form part of an answer where it's irresponsible, but we need to educate people to do a better job at discernment and filtering information and creating the right comparisons. Mm, yeah, thanks for that. Uh, so mostly going back to what you were saying about going to the balcony, getting some perspective on whatever you see or feel or understand and then realize that it's not through your own perspective that things can be understood. Uh, on, on that point, I, I would like to share with you and have your uh, views on the theory. Uh, since five to ten years, let's say, uh, there has been a lot of focus on self-reflection, self-improvement, uh, the trend of personal development, all about like, okay, I need to like look at myself, take care of myself, think about myself, grow myself, and, and all that, which is somehow important for leaders and for uh, everyone. But do you think that there has this has led to too much self-centeredness and that this could have limited our abilities to share together and then not being entitled to opinions because we look inward, but then uh, instead of looking outward and sharing conversation and learn to get perspective through others. Well, <laughs> again, that's such a, a, a big question, isn't it? Because I think um, when you talk about looking inwards and self-awareness, my first question was, where is that coming from? Um, because there would be, there would be perspectives on the planet where that that concept makes no sense. I remember talking to a Buddhist monk who very gently asked me, well, what do you mean by self-awareness? Because my understanding of the Buddhist philosophy is that um, it's so integrated, the notion you can separate yourself to look at yourself is almost uh, doesn't even gain any kind of traction. So the first thing around self-awareness is that um, I, I'm – I use the label cautiously. I think it's driven out of a very Western kind of mindset around leadership. And and if it's if it's going to cause somebody to be more self-centered, 
in a selfish way, then it's, it defeats the very purpose for what it's intended. My understanding of looking at yourself is to start to understand your own prejudices and your own biases and your own blind spots. Um, and that is inner work. And as you do that work, it makes you more receptive outwardly. It makes you more empathetic. So if the work of self-awareness does not lead to greater empathy and the ability to relate to others, then there's something very wrong with it. Then I think it does run the risk of falling into the trap of increasing selfishness, being more self-centered. My understanding of that work and using the term self-awareness is to make you more effective in uh, able to connect and reach out and empathetic with others. And when you then get feedback, which so many leaders don't get, and instead of being very defensive and, and uh, dismissing it, it makes you more receptive to it. No one likes getting feedback that hurts. But very often, that's the feedback that you need to pay the most attention to. And if you haven't done some of this in a work, I think that the easy thing to do in response to feedback, as an example, is to dismiss it, deflect it, and write them off. And you start using terms like them and us. Mm. Uh, so, I, yeah, I, I think that it does run the risk of doing what you suggested it might do, lead to greater self-centeredness and selfishness. But that is the antithesis of my understanding mm. of that work and why it is so important. Yeah, and remember, you, sorry, yeah. Uh, remembering that empathy is not only about seeing and recognizing emotions, but also putting yourself really in the perspective in, terms of, in, in every terms of the word understanding the social context, the cultural context and all that. And, and that goes beyond just like, okay, if she's, the person is sad, I'm sad too, or that kind of yeah. things that sometimes we see. I mean, emotional intelligence is made up of six parts. So if you wanted to work, you know, if someone says you need to be emotionally intelligent, or well, what on earth is that? The theory of that is says that's made up of self-awareness is, is the first part, uh, social skills, uh, especially as practice in a diverse setting is the second part. The ability then to regulate your emotions is the third part, not to just always react, but to put a pause between stimuli and reaction. Um, the fourth part is empathy. The fifth part is having a moral code from which you live. And the last part is um, understanding motivation, that you don't always respond or need ex extrinsic motivation. Mm -hmm. You can motivate yourself. So when you talk about having emotional intelligence, those are the six facets that make up emotional intelligence. And to me, regardless of your philosophy, regardless of your culture, those things might look different from culture to culture, but they're good things. Bundled together, uh, you would want leaders who are willing to go into those six rooms and do that work as it were. Yeah, thanks. Uh, speaking of lack of empathy, uh, let's talk about Donald Trump. Uh, you, you recently uh, shared on your social media a very interesting reflection, which was a post, just like a, a normal sharing, not an article, but around the idea that leadership is about character uh, and, and building on what's happening right now in the U.S. Uh, and beyond the joke that I just made. Uh, can you tell us a little bit more about the idea behind uh, this post? Yeah, I think the post that's had some interesting reactions, hasn't it? I know you've seen some of them, but I think there are three circles to consider here. So there's Trump the person and the character and the personality. 
The second circle is the policies that maybe are broader representative of Republican Party policies and the good or the bad from a, a, a policy point of view is the second circle. And the third circle, I think, is the role and portrayal, uh, especially of Trump to a lesser extent of the policies, the role of social me media, not social media, the role of media. And I think those three things get confused all the time. And my post was around the first circle, Trump the person, Trump the character. And I, I made it very clear I haven't met the person. Um, I haven't sat down with Donald Trump. But because of his public persona, there's enough evidence out there, first-hand evidence that's not filtered necessarily by the media. So I've come to understand that a lot of Trump supporters will say this. We know he's a flawed character. We know there's a lot that you don't need to like about him. But um, a lot of that is because the media have skewed him completely. And regardless of that, the policies that he's done and put in place, I agree with and I'll vote. And that's the, that's the narrative. My post was just looking at Trump, the character, and taking that saying that I think he's an appalling leader and he will never be a leader that I, in the work that I do on teaching uh, and being involved in leadership development programs worldwide, would ever point to to say that's a person that is worthy of emulating. Um, as opposed to a Nelson Mandela, who also was a very flawed character. And I met Nelson Mandela, but there would be somebody you would have no hesitation regardless of his policies, pointing somebody towards and saying, lead like that, emulate that. Those are footsteps worthy of following. I think Trump has uh, been despicable in um, how he has practiced leadership from a, from a character point of view. His example, uh, how he's discriminated, um, how he's disparaged. I just I wouldn't want my own children to act like he has acted in regards to somebody who's maybe physically challenged or some of the things he, we have seen with our own eyes and saying, that's what I wanted to attack. The policy and the role of media and all that, those are separate arguments that might influence that. But um, there's enough evidence for me in that first circle of Trump the person to say, as somebody who's passionate around leadership and who believes leadership matters and you lead, um, I, I've had difficulties teaching in the sense that somebody has said, Keith, why is the character ethic so important? If Trump can get to the office that he has, being who he is, why should I? Why should it matter? And that's a tough question to ask, you know, and trying to encourage people to be their best selves and to be empathetic and to be considerate and to be peacemakers and to be diplomatic and et cetera, et cetera. And I think on all those accounts, Trump has shown not to do it. Mm. It's interesting. Of your policies. Yeah, it's interesting that you put in perspective him and, and Nelson Mandela because uh, it also highlights the fact that sometimes the people are, are the issue towards the leader because they look for leaders who are either or perfect or completely imperfect. And that leads to this polarization around the personality of the leader, such as uh, Donald Trump, which sometimes I call bullshit leadership because there's no leader who's perfect. Uh, and Nelson Mandela is the exact example of that. He started with thinking violence could be a solution and, and dividing and all that. And he, and he grew intentionally into learning how to love his enemy and share and work with him because he recognized and acknowledged that would be the only solution 
to solve the issue of South Africa. So it's not about being already fit and completely ready and perfect with all the qualities, but having the intention to do something and to learn and to question yourself and to grow from that. Yeah, I mean, look, look at it, you know, Trump has been divisive. And again, regardless of the policies, I know a lot of intelligent people who have voted for him, over 17 million Americans voted for him. So you've got to be cautious about disparaging, you know, who he is because he has an awful lot. But he has been divisive. His leadership has divided. And I'm not sure America is going to be able to recover from this, to be honest. I, I think that, um, that it's going to take years. Mandela, mm. in the most divisive situation imaginable united people and there's your your polar opposite in in a situation far more inflamed than america's south africa back then was far more inflamed mandela served as a a unifying factor in the midst of extremes and 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 a, and something that could have exploded at any time um, in a situation far calmer trump has raised the heat he's created more division um it, it just it just boggles the mind. Mm. Yeah. All right. Let's talk about the future. Uh, you are a futurist. You do a lot of work around the future. I, I'm doing some too. Uh, and sometimes I hear people telling me, well, why, why bother talking about the future? There's so many issues that we have to solve right now. And this is just like for people who have the luxury or the privilege to look towards the future. But we are doing the real work of helping people and stuff. <clears throat> Sorry. And I recently came upon the book, the new book from Toby Ord, uh, the philosopher, uh, the book is called Precipice, which is an amazing book that takes the balcony view around the big ex existential threats. And he says this in his uh, introduction of the book, uh, could it be really as urgent a problem as suffering now? I came to realize that the risks to humanity's future are just as real and just as urgent, yet even more neglected and that the people of the future may be even more powerless to protect themselves from the risk we impose than the dispossessed of our own time. What do you think of that? And what, what would be your answer to people telling you we don't have time for the future right now? Well, I understand that. Uh, you know, when people say we don't have time, I understand that they might be facing such pressing survival issues that thinking of the future is a bit of a luxury. But my understanding and how I describe being a futurist is slightly different from just trying to articulate what the future will look like. I think there's a slight distinction between being a fortune teller and a futurist. And when people say, well, what on earth is a futurist? The working definition that I give is somebody who intentionally builds the capacity to see and understand the implications and meaning of change. Now, that's not articulating the future. It's somebody who is knowing how to look, somebody who builds understanding, who is able to articulate implications and ultimately ascribe meaning to change. So futures involves looking back as much as it looks it involves looking forward. As I gave the example earlier with understanding some of the shifts that happened uh, in the 14th century. Um, so it's a slightly different approach to maybe that. I personally, though, I, I would like to think I'm an optimist and I, not a blind optimist. I, I think we're on a trajectory of a healthier, better world. I think it's complicated, as I said earlier, by how we filter our information. But if you look at all the trajectories around education, around health, you know, 80% of the children today 
under one years old have been vaccinated or inoculated against some disease, 80%. Girls on average, by the time schooling is finished, have spent nine years in school as opposed to men or boys who have spent 10 years. Now, it's still a gap, but it's nothing like it was at a time when um, when very often girls weren't afforded opportunity to go to have education and, and, and young boys were. That gap has closed. Um, we, uh, you know, the majority of the people live in the middle today, not in the extremes. Uh, the extremes are more than they ever have been, extreme poverty and extreme wealth, but the majority of people live in the middle. So I, I, I'm fairly optimistic that we're on the right kind of trajectory. I, I think we've got a younger generation coming through by way of the millennials um, who will have a wonderful view in many cases on the planet and what's important and what matters. And mm. I, I think we, we're on a good trajectory. Yeah. Uh, I've, I've stopped calling myself an, an optimist and I'm calling in myself instead a skeptic enthusiast, which are the words from Astro Taylor, the director of uh, X, which I think are interesting because they depict exactly what it means to be positive for the future while still looking at the challenge of, of today. And that's basically the, the premise of Steven Pinker in his uh, book Enlightenment to say, we've made progress, we can continue to do so, because if you think that we're already doomed, then what's the point? And and what I like in the in the quote from Toby Ord is is that it shows the one important part of leadership, which is legacy. Whatever we do right now to help everyone uh, will serve the generations to come. Otherwise, we jeopardize their future. Yet they don't even exist, and they don't even have a say in that. You, you know, one of the things we're telling our clients, Philippe, in terms of um, you know, when they hear you're a futurist, uh, you know, you're invited to speak or engage with an executive team, they want to know exactly that. What's what's our future? I've said, stop worrying about what the next disruption is going to be. Number one, you know, it is going to happen. So uh, Peter Drucker said, turbulence is not the challenge. The greatest danger in turbulence is the use of yesterday's logic. So for a leader who is leading his or her company, my advice is simply don't worry about exactly coloring in the picture of disturbance. I mean, the, the next disruption, it could be a solar storm that knocks out half of the world's communication infrastructure. Think about what that would precipitate. It could be and is likely to be another pandemic. It could be a trade war. It could be a real war. It could be a collapse in the financial system as happened. In, I mean, there are any number of horrible scenarios to, to pick from. And instead of preparing for a scenario and then something else happens, it Rather prepare your organization to adapt regardless. The Greek god Proteus was a, the Greek god of the sea who could shape, shift, who could change his shape regardless or, or in, in response to the enemy being faced. And I think smart organizations become Proteus organizations. They, they realize that their best strategy is to have a structure that is flexible. So make structure your strategy. Um, I think that's an important message mm. so that regardless of what happens, you have the ability. Now, there are ways you can do that, and we're not going to, I'm sure, get into that now, but it's how decisions are made, how information is collated, how you respond, um, your, your supply chain, et cetera. There are practical things beyond the theoretical notion of making structure your strategy, but that changes the emphasis from trying to be fortune tellers and articulate exactly what the next disruption is going to be and then preparing for that. 
it's a little bit like the military have known completely. You plan, but the moment the first shot is fired, your plans go up in smoke. You then have got to be willing to improvise, you know. All right, thanks. Um, all right, my last question for today. Uh, I've already picked your brain enough. Um, so the world is challenging, but as it was before, and there's still like good things to come uh, eventually. Uh, and there may be some people listening to us who wonder, shall I get myself into a leadership journey? Uh, shall I start caring more about my community to a point where I commit myself to them and, and, I, and I engage in that, in that pathway? So what would be your advice or recommendation to any person who would like to start doing something for his or her community or the globe and the world in general, but could feel helpless uh, right now looking at the news and, and all that? So do what makes sense. Don't stop and say, well, because I think I can't make a difference, do whatever makes sense. But remember this. If you start that journey intent on exercising and being a leader, I think you might be starting in a dangerous way. I remember once hearing John Adair give a lecture. Adair was the uh, head of the Sandhurst Military Academy for many years in the UK, prolific writer and author around leadership and management. And he was giving a lecture and somebody um, in the lecture theater put up his hand and interrupted him halfway through and started a sentence like this, Dr. Adair, as leaders, do you think, and Adair stopped him dead in his tracks, and I'll never forget what he said next. He said, leadership is conferred, never claimed. And starting your sentence of as leaders, you know, claiming leadership, leadership is conferred. So I would say this in response to your great question, do something, don't be inactive, become an activist, look to the betterment of your community or your society or your family, start where you can, do whatever makes sense, um, and leadership will be conferred on you. And as it is conferred on you, wear it lightly. Uh, don't take yourself too seriously, but treat the responsibility with reverence. But if you set out to try and be a leader and make a difference, I think I think that might be uh, a shaky ground to start with. But do what you can, where you can, kind of a, if not you, then who type of mentality. Get in there, do what makes sense. And I think you'll find over time leadership gets conferred over on you, and then you can start to maybe leverage and use that influence uh, in subtle and clever ways going forward. All right. Great. Thanks for this uh, great advice. And thank you, Keith, for joining us on this uh, first episode of this new series. It was uh, great to hear your insights and your uh, views on the world. There's a lot to digest for everyone. And, I, and I'm sure that uh, you gave uh, clarity and understanding to, to all that. So thank you again. My pleasure. Thank you, Philip. Take care.